In this episode of 4D, we talk to Kathy Gilbody about the movement system diagnosis. If you are not familiar with the movement system diagnosis, please look at the resources found in our show notes prior to listening. Watching Kathy's webinar on the movement system diagnosis will also be helpful as we refer to the content and the cases presented in the webinar during this podcast. It's a great conversation and we hope you get something out of it. Welcome to 4D, deep dive into degenerative diseases. Gaining insights through casual and amusing clinical conversations. Welcome to 4D, Deep Dive into Degenerative Diseases, a podcast by the Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group of the ANPT. I'm Parm Paget, Secretary of the DDSIG, and we are very excited to have Kathy Gilbody with us for this episode. Kathy is a neurologic clinical specialist at Newton Wellesley Hospital in Massachusetts and adjunct clinical associate professor at the MGH Institute of Health Professions. Kathy, welcome. Thank you. To 4D. Thank you. It's nice to be here. So um, tell us a little bit about sort of what you do and how you got to where you are. Okay. So currently, and for the past 12 years, I've been in clinical practice at Newton Wellesley Hospital, which is a community hospital in a suburb of Boston. Um, my practice is in the outpatient arena, and I treat patients with all kinds of neurologic problems, but primarily people with balance and falls, vestibular, uh, concussion, cerebellar, degenerative disorders, and then anybody who comes in really with a history of falls or who needs to be evaluated for sort of balance problems or fall prevention. So I've been there for the last 12 years, and we've grown the program. I was the only neural person there when I came, and I came for a summer take over maternity leave. And I'm still there 12 years later because I really like the practice sitting and the people. And now we have a team of four of us, which has provided a lot, you know, more opportunities to grow and expand for me to be a mentor, et cetera. Uh, prior to that, I worked at the MGH Institute, um, but I was a faculty member for about 15 years full time. I moved away from that when we decided to have children. And I did online teaching through the MGH Institute for the graduate program, which at that point was an international program. Um, so I did that for five or six years. Um, and then early in my career, I was, when I was a new grad, I went to work at uh, Mass General Hospital. And I worked there for about 10 years, uh, doing a variety of clinical rotations and experiences, which was what you did back then. And I basically migrated towards neuro to stroke and got my master's degree back when the master's degree was an advanced degree in neuro-PT. And from that degree, I learned to do research. So I've along the way had great opportunities, even with an MS and a DPT and an NCS, to be involved in clinical research studies, um, both at MGH and then also more recently with a a group um, doing a project on um, perturbation balance training out of Dartmouth-Hitchcock, a multi-center trial. I've been able to do that um, at Newton Wellesley. So I've done a, a little bit of everything. I kind of, I love teaching. Um, I love clinical practice. I, I really like research and I've kind of balanced them and gone back and forth between how much of them I do depending on uh, sort of where I am. Well, that's great and, and super inspiring too, because I think a lot of people have multiple interests, but have a really hard time 
sort of trying, you know, figuring out how to carve out those pieces. I think having that longer term of like, you don't have to have everything in one job and -hmm. that you can sort of do something for a while and specialize and then switch to something else and is, is a great model. I think that that, that that's great. And it's gotten you pretty far in terms of, weren't you like editor of JNPT for a while? No, I've been on the editorial board um, for a long time and I'm still on it. And so that's been a great opportunity to sort of help people get their papers published and sort of help choose the direction of the journal. And then I've also, and I'm still currently an associate editor on physical therapy journal. Okay. Maybe that's what I was thinking of. Okay. Yeah. Great. So that's fun. And that's all extra work that you're probably doing outside of your clinical time. It is. It is. So I've been lucky in many ways. I've had lots of great opportunities and people that were willing to kind of scoop me up and teach me how to do things that, that were evolving and for which there was no you know, set path. Like the first clinical research project we did at MGH was on reliability of gait. And um, I wasn't even in the master's program yet, but somebody who came to the Institute, Maureen Holden, wanted to do a clinical project. She was on the faculty and she looked for clinicians and who were interested and I was one of them. So I feel like I've had lots of great opportunities to do things, you know, a little bit before um, or as they were evolving with not necessarily the, the specific credentials. And I've just been in the right place at the right time, a lot of times, but for the last 12 years at um, Newton Wellesley, I've worked three days a week, Carm. So that has allowed me, and again, I'm, I'm just, I feel blessed to be able to do that, but that has allowed me, eventually allowed me to be at home um, even when I was working a little bit online and, and I'd be with my kids more. Eventually, it allowed me to do things like the editorial work mm-hmm. that I do um, and to be involved in various projects um, with APTA that do take a lot of time and can't be done in your daily work site time. So that I think that has enabled me to really enjoy those opportunities and, and meet people from across the country and do kind of new emerging things, which is really what excites me. Yeah, that's uh, really lucky to be able to have that kind of flexibility in your work life to allow for some of these other projects. Yeah. But I also like that sort of call to look for those opportunities or when opportunities come up to maybe think creatively. I know I always try to do that about, you know, how can I somehow like weasel my way into doing this and have it either be part of my work or, you know, it starts out as a few hours and then it grows to something bigger can be exciting. So I think when you have those opportunities to really consider them and sort of, you know, jump in is good advice. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, some of the things that led me to get to know some of the people that are my peers and for whom I have so much respect who are sort of more or less at my life decade or stage, I met, you know, volunteering at the at the neurology section booth at CSM. You know. um, others I took the specialty exam with, right. and that's where we met because there were only three of us. So I think that, yeah, you, you, you know, there's a thing about timing, but there's things about opportunities that even the small ones can often lead to great mentorships and friendships. Mm-hmm. It, it can sometimes feel like a small community, but it's also, I think, a very supportive and fun community. Oh, yeah. All right. So I'd like to transition a little bit to talking more about what you've been doing recently with the Academy 
and the task force around movement systems diagnosis. You know, there's been some banter, uh, quite honestly, I think some confusion about it. And we're going to sort of assume that people have some baseline understanding of what we're talking about so that we can sort of delve into some of the questions that we have just so that, you know, sort of in preparation for this, we did some reading and we watched your webinar on the movement system diagnosis that's free on the Synapse Center, which is awesome that it's free. But I guess to start with, if we could, if you could just give us sort of your take on what it is, what is the movement system diagnosis? Okay. We'll start, we'll start broad and then we'll dive down. So the way I think about the movement system diagnosis in kind of, you know, non-rehearsed terms, like part of a conversation, um, is that it's really a way to represent or state what I think of as like the bottom line that I come to about what's happening with the patient or what the patient's problems are. So I think that when we go through our clinical decision-making process, if you think of like the patient-client management model, you know, we we do a history, do an exam, we then put all that information together with information about the patient, their preferences, their background, their history, right? And we make an evaluation and a diagnosis. And so to date, that diagnostic statement has been really a statement that I think primarily focuses on linking the patient's symptoms or their impairments to their functional limitations, okay? And if you read in the guide, that's what that says. It doesn't tell you the so what part of that. So you can have a list of impairments, a list of functional limitations, but really one patient, the the problem might be movement coordination. And for another patient, maybe with the same medical diagnosis, the really bottom line problem is that they have poor reactive stepping and they're falling. And so that's what I mean. Those are examples and not necessarily those terms, but those are examples of what I mean by the bottom line. Mm -hmm. I think an experienced clinician and students obviously get there as well, but experienced clinician is sort of filtering information throughout the patient client management model. And they are either considering or ruling in or rooting out certain kind of, you know, bottom line problems for this patient. What's really going on? So I think that's, to me, what the movement system diagnosis is. I think the challenge has been how do we add a term or set of terms or label that would represent that. So that would add to, for example, in our documentation, the part of the, of the note where we say this patient is a 70-year-old such and something with these, you know, presenting with this chief complaint examination today reveals this, considering the patient has these, you know, personal factors, plus or minus, to, to, that might impact care. The, the major problem is that the patient has a movement coordination problem, where the patient has impaired anticipatory and reactive postural control. To arrive at that represents a number of things, which I'm happy to talk about, but from a clinical decision-making point of view, right. I think it sharpens the thinking to have to kind of come to a bottom line. Right. And, and then I think it could link much more clearly to treatment, mm-hmm. plus help us choose from the myriad of options that we can choose from. Um, and I don't mean like this approaches, the approaches is a piece of it, but it's actually the, what do you do? What are the treatment procedures and what's the dosage and what are the parameters and mm-hmm. implement it and all that, right? So I think it can link to treatment as well, and it should, it needs to. I think the tricky thing is that we're now developing these these diagnostic labels or these potential bottom lines mm-hmm. and 
and um, we haven't had them. And so I think, though, we have had many clinicians who go through a good decision-making process and maybe arrive at that bottom line, maybe in their head, maybe in their note. And I think that they may be doing a lot of this process and they may have a small adjustment to make to add on the label. But I think there are others who maybe don't think it through or haven't had such an in-depth process to kind of get down to what is actually this patient's main movement problem. Mm-hmm. How, how am I going to treat it different than this other person's main movement problem, even though they may both have had a stroke or they right. both may have Parkinson's disease. That's kind of how I think about the movement system. And so then the goal of, of the groups working on this, one of which is the balanced diagnosis group, has been to come up with what might be these bottom line phrases or labels using movement system terminology. Mm-hmm as opposed to the medical pathology terminology or or other other options. Other stuff that we just make up that's kind of different yeah. for every person. Yeah, and not like a functional limitation pathology, but really a movement system pathology. Right. In words that will be understood by people outside of PT as well. So, you know, which is, and not making up necessarily our own terms. Right, every time, yeah. So one of the things that I think is hard for some people. I think you're right. I think some people in their mind drill down, but then in their note will write every single impairment, which I think is fine, but not necessarily singling out what's really causing the problem. You know, somebody with a balance problem that you, they might have a balance problem for multiple reasons that you're sort of able to, to drill down and figure out. But then you kind of know from your assessment which one you think is the biggest problem. And you might sort of start your intervention there. So I think you're right. I think a lot of people are doing it. I think some people are doing it and not even realizing that they're doing it. Mm -hmm. And I think that some people are doing it and realizing it, but not necessarily, don't necessarily have that habit of actually like putting their finger on it in their documentation. So what I what I love about what you just said is to give us that example of the documentation. Like this is sort of, you know, how you would set it up and what you would say. And I mm-hmm. think when people hear that, it makes sense. And to have those examples, I think is great. Uh, the webinar in the case examples took people through a series of tasks, right? To help come to the diagnosis. Yeah. So how important is it, do you think, to like do all of those tasks for every patient? Yeah, that's a really good question. So the task analysis group is a different subgroup than the one I've been working on, but we've worked in concert. And their feeling has been that if the patient can attempt the tasks, that those six, there are six core tasks that have been identified, as you know, that it's important to attempt them because they give different type of information so that they're best thought of as a collective group. And having been through the balanced diagnoses group, I have to tell you, I literally just submitted our final report today. So that we've had a big woohoo moment here. But we've been working for almost two years on this. And we can really see, having been through it with, to try to classify the balance problem, because that's what the balanced diagnosis does, right? we can see that different tasks elicit different aspects of, of balance issues. And it's really good to look across the tasks. Now, 
so I think the recommendation that's going to come from the task analysis group is going to be whenever possible to look at the patient across those six core tasks. Now, there are certainly patients who come into PT and they're not walking, right? So this needs to be adapted to the patient's abilities. And I see a lot of patients in outpatient PT practice where sitting doesn't really give me a lot of information because the patients are community ambulators. They might be falling or have movement problems, they do, but sitting is not necessarily a task where that would show up as much as standing. Mm -hmm. So, but the idea was to create a six core tasks that could be, if you think about it this way, taught to students that in the entry-level program, they learn how to evaluate them using a systematic format, which the task analysis has identified, but none of us have seen it all. You haven't seen it all. I've seen drafts of it. It, It's not, it's going to be finished and submitted to the ANT board, and then there'll be further work on it. But having seen it and worked with it, there's a systematic way of thinking about each of the tasks, alignment, symmetry, etc. for movement, it's speed and it's power. But there's certain key, um, there's a framework and it goes across the six tasks and they develop checklists. So if you can imagine learning this framework in school and becoming trained with it, it, it we believe is a framework that could then be adapted to any task. Mm-hmm. And that they chose those six tasks after looking at the literature and, and considering movement on a variety of perspectives, considering ages, and then coming up with what they thought was the first best pass for the six core tasks. So there's things that could be really important to evaluate in a patient that aren't included there, like getting up to the side of the bed for a low-level patient. And there could be sports and leisure activities that aren't included, right? But if we have a framework and we're all kind of looking at movement consistently and using the same terminology, there's a good chance that further revisions or further work could then expand this so that we actually, as physical therapists, are doing a consistent and hopefully reliable, once they study, and valid movement analysis of tasks, which without our perspective would be then it's hard to understand movement unless we're doing that. And, and you probably know that movement and task analysis used to be in the guide and it was taken out of one of the revisions. So it's not even like recognized as a an important part of our examination right now, which is really concerning. Yeah. If we're moving towards a movement system, we need to be evaluating things on a movement level as well as trying to kind of diagnose or label them and then having that link to our treatment. It, there's, it's got to flow, right? Mm-hmm. So the, all of that is, is sort of the rationale behind picking a limited number that would, you know, span maybe 70, 80% of Many patients are seen in neuro-PT practice, but not every single patient. Um, and that would have a good chance based on you know, understanding of movement in the literature, you know, of being useful in trying to diagnose movement problems, even though we don't yet have the labels fully developed. You can right. see that it's a bit of a tricky thing. And so you're a practicing clinician. I am. Which I, I think is so valuable to have you involved in this as a practicing clinician. Have you, as you're, you know, working on this stuff on your non-clinical days, have you tried to bridge and take some of it into your clinical practice to sort of try it out and see how it works and flows? Absolutely. Absolutely. And how has that been? The best way for me to answer your question is to say that my thinking about 
how to examine patients, and then my treatments have definitely evolved over the last year and a half as a result of being involved in this project. And the best example I can give you is a patient that I showed some videos for in the podcast that you mentioned, the webinar. Mm-hmm. And um, we we use this. This is a patient with Parkinson's disease, and we um, he's been in treatment, in and out of treatment at our center um, because he's had repeated difficulties with falls and injuries for at least the last five years he's been in and out. And I've been treating him since he had a really bad fall a year ago, and he, a year and a half ago now, and he got a subdural hematoma in addition to his other neurologic and I guess some cervical and orthopedic injuries. And anyhow, so I've been treating him for a while, and he, he is a repeated faller. And he was making some progress, but basically what, what changed in my thinking is I really wasn't thinking about trying to understand or classify his balance problem according to the, the system we came up with. So, so the task analysis is something I definitely practiced with him, and, and I could link the movement observations that he made to what it might look like if someone had an anticipatory postural control problem. I could see he had some problems in sitting and standing that might match with a steady state problem. This is what's on our templates. And I could see that during sit to stand and initial attempts at walking, which were in a harness, that if he needed to take a step, he couldn't. So that there was obviously some evidence of some reactive control problems. So I was definitely thinking about the different types of postural control, right? But I, what changed was that I actually really tried to kind of be more thorough in my examination of his functional tasks and challenge him to try some of the core tasks at a higher level. And I had to do that by putting him in the harness and, and some other things to be able to test that, but I probably wouldn't have tested that. And that led me to really identify that most of his problems were in anticipatory. He was pretty good in steady state. And that reactive, I couldn't even evaluate because he had to be supported. So he obviously had problems there, right? But then over the course of the next six months, what um, struck me is that he made a lot of gains in anticipatory, made a lot of gains in his steady state. His reactive postural control didn't change at all. And this was a gentleman who wanted to return to independent walking. And the long and short of it is that the only way that we were, that he can do that is with a U-step walker that controls his degrees of freedom. Mm -hmm so that he doesn't have to activate his reactive control system. Mm-hmm. And so I, that, that's a new way of thinking and sort of, I use the classification system to help me kind of track progress and to help me make important decisions about a device for him. And then to really stick to my clinical judgment with telling him he's on safe walking alone, because he could actually on some days, as you can imagine, take a few steps safely by himself. But most of the time, he can't do that. And he has, he has a pump. It's not related to his, his on-off time. But it's just literally kind of what, what he has left. Mm-hmm. So I definitely, over the course of this year, found myself thinking differently about not only, you know, he had problems on all, on all three. He had three, if you would, balanced diagnoses at the beginning. Right, he, right. He had components of all three. But he made a lot of progress in steady state. He made good progress in anticipatory, and he made very little progress in reactive. And that kind of thinking about it that way helped me to really kind of figure out when I should decrease the frequency of his care, as well as, you know, when he was stabilizing, and then what would be my really, you know, bottom line, if you will, 
recommendations for his gate device. And so I had all those things in my head, but I probably didn't think about them as clearly. And I certainly, I would have struggled more with how to transition him back to the community and decrease frequency of his care if I hadn't really been trying to, to track progress um, in those different domains of his postural control. All right. Oh, I have a couple things. Did you notice or did he report any change in his falls as a result? Yeah. Yeah. He hasn't had a fall in like six months now. Wow. Okay. But this gentleman was falling. Well, and there's a few caveats. It's not, it wasn't just PT. This gentleman was falling three to four times a day and he was not always compliant with recommendations. Since he came back from the hospital rehab and came back to therapy, um, he has a 24-hour live-in aid and he's much more compliant. Mm-hmm. So there's, a, you know, like most situations, right? It's not, it's a combination of things. Right. But in therapy, he still pushes, you know, he pushes the limits repeatedly. So this is a gentleman who has, has been very active as an advocate in, in, the, in the Parkinson's Association and he still works part-time. And so he was not really, doesn't want to settle. He still doesn't want to settle for the, the limits that we said he needs to live with. So the other thing that this brings up that, you know, we hadn't really, um, I hadn't certainly hadn't thought about, but but in the realm of degenerative diseases, it seems like we're sort of delving now into the balance piece of it, but but having like these diagnoses within balance can help you to monitor progression. Right. So people might initially have problems with reactive postural control, but their static or steady state postural control is still intact. And that might change over time as the disease yes. progresses. Yes. You know, again, that wasn't what we set out to do, but you asked me specifically about my application and practice. And so that that's I think, yes, I think that it definitely has some potential in that arena. You know, not not unlike if we thought the patient's movement problem primarily was muscle performance, we'd be we'd be monitoring strength, right? So we'd be looking for some evidence over time whether or not that main critical determinant of the movement problem was responding to treatment or could you know, or do we need to adjust something, or is this what the patient has left after, say, a spinal cord injury, or whatever whatever it is. So it's not unlike that. But I, I didn't anticipate um, that it would have that potential benefit until I actually started applying it to patients in the clinic. Mm-hmm. And it, right now, when you do your documentation, do you try to use some type of movement and diagnosis? I do. Yeah. So the piece that we've done since the webinar is we, we, so we have these three main diagnostic categories, steady state control, anticipatory control, and reactive postural control. But we have types that we've now identified and more fully developed. So for example, under reactive control, it could be primarily from a sensory issue or a motor issue. And so we've developed a list of the tests and measures that might be abnormal if it was mostly a sensory issue and a, and a different list if it was mostly a motor issue. And so, so those are two different diagnoses, technically, not theoretically, you could have both. But we've tried to dig down into it. And so for anticipatory, we have one that's executive function. Mm. We have one that's motor. We have one that's sensory. And we have one that's related to balanced confidence. Mm. And then for steady state, we have 
a sensory one. Again, they all look a little different, but a motor one. And then we have a balanced confidence one there as well. And then we have an alignment one for patients with the backward disequilibrium or the pusher syndrome. So it, we try to get at, dig down a little bit into the, in the label or how you say that. So I would say patient has anticipatory posture control problems. I would say, without throwing out the medical diagnosis, I might say associated with vestibular dysfunction, bilateral vestibular hypofunction, whatever, of a sensory organization or sensory processing type. Because it's really the vestibular system, say, for that patient, that is the main um, uh, contributor to their balance problem. And that may also affect other types of their balance, may affect reactive, but often not so much. And steady state only if you really challenge them and try and change some of their sensory information. Mm-hmm. But it's anticipatory that really it's very easy to have them be unstable or have difficulty or have symptoms. So I do, I, I definitely bring in the labels of anticipatory. I don't really see people very much in my practice that have steady state. I think that's more of a lower level thing. Or if they have it, again, that's not necessarily the main thing. So I tend to have seen more reactive and anticipatory, but I try to also bring in the underlying main contributing impairments or factors um, in my documentation. And it's, I mean, it's pretty straightforward, but yeah, I do. I have a confession to make. I sort of, as this has been unfolding, and you know, we're hearing more and more at the national level about the movement system diagnosis. I went back to Patty Sheets, 2007, article and where she uh, or that group sort of outlines nine different diagnostic ideas, categories, labels, whatever you want to call them. And I've Uh tried using them in my own documentation. And at the beginning, I have, I'll admit it was not easy. It took me some time, but interestingly, the more I used it, the easier it got. And I think the faster I am when I'm seeing the patient, because I'm thinking like, okay, so what's their biggest problem here? Like what, Mm -hmm. you know, and I work in acute care. So Mm -hmm. it's also interesting because sometimes it can change daily, like particularly somebody with a stroke, you can go in and they're completely flaccid one day and the next day they're moving their leg all around. And then you're like, oh, now you have a different problem. Um, So it's been really interesting from that perspective too, to like really think about what, what am I seeing today? Right. It's been really interesting and really a little bit hard to wrap my brain around at first, but then the more I practiced with it, the easier it got. And I think it's allowing me to sort of take in some of this information that's coming out a little bit easier because I already have a mental framework for how to apply it. So for our listeners, I think it's great to look at that article and look at those diagnostic categories and just try to, you know, even if you're not applying them, you know, just have them listed at your desk where you do your documentation and just look every now and again and see where would I put this patient? If I, if I really had to jump off and give them a diagnosis, what would it be? You know, and the the thing is, it's the patient's real issue is coordination versus strength. Then as we do our functional retraining, we should be working on that underlying problem, right? So we should be doing treatment A if we're trying to generate strength or power, raising the seat of the bed if it sits to stand, 
you know, using the musculature within the range that it's available, you know, uh, you know avoiding a, um, a fall, obviously, but also avoiding putting a lot of abnormal stresses on a knee, you know, whatever. It is, the problem is movement coordination. It's different. It's timing. It's smoothness. So how we do that sit-to-stand training or whatever should vary if we're really trying to apply our understanding of the bottom line, the patient's movement problem, then that's not to say it can always be separated or it's always that clear, but, but I think that we don't always do that, to be very honest. I don't think that, I think we do functional training, we have our treatment, but I'm not sure we always have the beacon light on, I've got to get at these underlying pieces. Mm-hmm. Patient's problem is balance confidence. You know, I would tell you with my patients with balance problems, I'm doing a lot of things early on that they can do. Right. I'm managing their confidence. Right, I'm right. Their self-efficacy. Right. And they're taking balanced challenges. And I and they're incremental. And I know the literature tells me that I need to challenge them. But if they're one of their main contributing things is confidence because they've had vertigo and they've fallen in the street and they're 80 and they also have a balance problem. And now the vertigo is gone and they're still really you know, frightened of, of going out of their house. Right. That's the patient. That's the problem I have to treat. And having them stand on one leg is not an appropriate choice early on. <laughs> having them do things they can do and, and then slowly changing it is. So I think when you actually sit and think about it, Parm, when you get into it and try it, I think there's levels of thinking and reflection that are very helpful for mm-hmm. people to engage in. Yeah. And so what you're, you know, what we're talking about here, like you're giving us examples in the balance realm because that's what's been developed. Mm -hmm. And what you're talking about, you like in the webinar was identified these three categories and now it's looking like they're kind of broad categories. And then within each of those categories as a diagnosis. So somebody would have like an anticipatory postural control problem due to sensory organization or sensory integration or whatever. Yeah, or, or associated with that. Right. Yeah. And so that would be then their diagnosis. Is that mm-hmm. correct? Am I thinking about it correctly? Yep. So, you know, let's say that in the balance realm, we're talking about maybe 10. Mm-hmm. Does that seem reasonable? Mm-hmm. Is Has there been any thought on a larger, like, system scale of like how many of these broad categories like balance are we going to have? Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering, like, are we going to have a hundred diagnoses in the neural realm that we're going to need to understand and learn and know? That's a great question. And I don't think we're there yet. So ANPT's approach was to get a group together and begin to work on some of them. And our group decided to take balance because if you look at Sheets' work, there's no classification of the type of balance problem, right? So balance is definitely a problem. And her work is, their work is terrific. But we decided to pick something that we thought could be classified further, like balance, and needed to be, based on our understanding of, of the literature and, and science now. And we thought it would be kind of straightforward. It, it was not straightforward. <laughs> it absolutely was not a straightforward choice. So we, we, have, we have had an eye on how many is workable within balance from the very beginning. And we initially had the, the three broader ones, and we had a lot of debate about how useful that would be for practice. 
and whether or not, if you just divided by reactive anticipatory steady state balance problem, you just did that cut, if you will, in terms of the classification, would that help clinicians make decisions about treatment? And we had almost our entire task force who felt vehemently that it would not be sufficient, which is why we then went to the subclassifications, if you will, that, that arrived us at about 10, yes. So there has not been by the academy, as far as I know, any um, discussion then about what's next. Are we going to go back and visit Sheets work and see if it works in the, you know, the movement system and adapt it so that we now have several other diagnoses and, and either, you know, validate them or update them or bring them into the fold um, and endorse them because they're not, they're not used, right? You know that some people might use them, but they haven't been used. And really until we got into this new vision through APTA and sections and ANPT has been a leader in this, really hasn't sat down and said, all right, so what does this movement system mean? And do we need labels? Okay, yes, we definitely need labels. Well, at what level should we make the labels and how do we develop them? And so I think we really don't know, but I think that there's been a lot of careful thinking about not having too many, but also having them be useful for linking to interventions. I think that in terms of the balanced diagnosis and the task analysis, those groups do have next steps, even though we're going to be finishing our written reports to the board. The task analysis group has plans to proceed with reliability testing of the, how you would look at those core tasks. And there's going to be some preliminary focus group work done at CSM. And then there's going to be a further step that will involve people who volunteer to do some reliability testing of videos online. So we're going to try and validate that task analysis, that component of the exam as one project. And then for the balanced diagnosis, there's conversation about the next step there being to do a Delphi study so that we actually have people validate. If you have this case, you have these findings, would you call it this? Would you call it that? You know, um, on our observations, we have a lot of observations for each of these tasks. Maybe we need a lot, but maybe we don't. Maybe you could do it with fewer key observations. So there's going to be some refinement and all that of the work we've done. What I don't know, and I don't know that it's been discussed yet, is what about all the other diagnoses? You know, and theoretically, some of the other sections are working on this too. And so, you know, we develop balanced diagnosis for people with balance problems. And yes, neurologic, but we're hoping that they'll be very useful to geriatric section, pediatric section. And so- right. We tried to keep our view broad, but obviously we didn't include, you know, crawling, right? And so that could be a very useful thing for, for pediatrics. So I think it's kind of up to us, like us collectively, you all and me and whoever, to kind of think about what we do next and how to do it and, and how to contribute, to be honest with you, because I think that we don't want to adopt something that's not vetted. And we want it to work across all practice sites, right? And levels of clinicians, at least most of the time. We want it to be something that's clear and that we understand. And so we have more work to do. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's going to take a while for it to get out to the masses Mm -hmm. and have that kind of sort of groundswell. But I really like the idea of calling for volunteers for the, you know, to look at the tasks online. 
Mm-hmm. be involved in a reliability study because, you know, it's a way that the rest of us can sort of be involved in addition to just kind of trying to keep up on the information and the literature that's out there and sort of dabbling when, when yeah. we can in based on what we learn in these, you know, between the papers and the webinars and yeah stuff like that. The other place where, you know, it's, it's come up sort of that one of the benefits of the movement system diagnosis is also on the research side. Yeah. It is really huge because as you know, a stroke, you can present with any neurologic impairment. And so to do research on that broad group, you know, it makes sense that sometimes our interventions are like not going to show a huge right. benefit because you're, it's an intervention for one specific subtype, but you're really applying it to everybody. Agreed. Yeah. No, so no, I have to tell you, like, even when I review papers now, if the balance measures, again, that's where my head's been. So, but if the question or the um, research question is focusing on a particular aspect of balance changing and the outcome measures don't even measure it, you know, it drives me nuts. Yeah, right. <laughs> because, well, kind of, we need to really think about what we know that many of our balance measures and even the ones that are part of the core outcome set, they don't address all the aspects of postural control. We know that. Reactivist is the most obvious one that's left out a lot, right? And so if we have patients who are falling or, you know, and we could document that in any any way, and then our outcome measures are not necessarily looking at that happening, (laughs) um, if the patient can catch their balance, it's, it's just not it's not linked, you know, it's not logical. So we've had this discussion that actually kind of coming to classifying the patient's problems more clearly will allow us to study subgroups of people with reactive control problems. And this has happened already a little bit because we have these perturbation studies that are evolving, but they're looking specifically at whether or not, you know, the reactive control changes with treatments directly focused at that. So that's probably the one group where it's kind of evolved anyhow, even without our diagnosis. But a lot of the rest of it is kind of mushed together, right? And it's really hard then to interpret the study and know if the treatment um, worked or didn't work or if we didn't detect, we just weren't thinking about things at the level of the movement diagnosis. And if we had, would we have designed the study a little bit differently? Mm-hmm. Yeah, very interesting. Mm-hmm. I think you're right. There's a lot of work to be done and I think there's a lot more to come. And so I'm excited to sort of see where it goes and see how it develops. And I think it'll take time. It would be nice to be presented with like a whole package. Yeah. The whole yeah. thing. But that's not life, right? Yeah, right. So the whole package I don't think is is gonna it's going to evolve. Even even though with the balanced diagnoses um stuff and the task analysis, we I'll, I'll tell you that. We've had conversations about when do we share it because we want it to be reliable and valid, right? We want to be able to stand behind it. And yet people like yourself and so many others are trying to keep up with this movement and this initiative and trying to think about what it means for practice and how can they begin to kind of apply these things. But it it really is still evolving. So we, we don't exactly know what our bottom line will be if we'll post some interim document on the Academy website if we'll be thinking about a white paper, um, clearly when we have looked at reliability and validity, we'll, we'll, we'll publish that. That you know, would be the goal. Um, but that could be a year away, right? Yeah. So it, 
it's a tricky thing to try to figure out how to stay up with it. And it's also a tricky thing to figure out how, when to share. So CSM and presentations are good. Podcasts right now, they're good because we can clearly show where we're at and what's left, you know, and it is evolving. So we are still very open to feedback and questions and conversation. This is not a done deal. It'll, it'll be evolving as it goes through validity and reliability testing. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that's why you do that. You want the product to be the best it can be. Right. But it's tricky. I've never actually been involved in something like this where we kind of get to the end of our charge and then like, it's not like out there, you know? Right, right. It's, it, feels a, it feels a little bit unfinished, but I think that we'll, we'll figure it out. I just don't know what the timing of that will be. Has has there been any discussion about how this might in the future affect payment models? Yeah, yeah. There's, there's uh, we have not focused on that in our group, but there's definitely the thinking that instead of an ICD nine code, this could be a billing code diagnosis. Your movement system diagnosis could be your billing code. Mm-hmm. That it, it, it really clearly identifies that you're seeing the patient for a balance problem related to this and this and this, and, and you know maybe it would be linked to their stroke. I don't know. But that the the actual reason for referral, the problems that you're you're treating, are movement based. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's people that feel strongly that this could replace the IC10 code, and, and it could be much more helpful to us. And then we could then sort by these codes, and we could identify patients, cluster data, and look across lots of patients and ask really important questions, particularly as we all are going to the electronic medical record systems. So it has a lot of potential down the road. Right. Interesting, for sure. Mm -hmm. And we will do our best to keep up with it all (laughs) as it moves forward. So Kathy, you've clearly been busy with this. You're, You're busy with your clinical practice, but we always like to ask people when you're not working, what do you enjoy doing? That's a great question. I enjoy reading. My husband and I enjoy traveling a lot. We're empty nesters now. So we have two daughters in their 20s, one's in DC and one's in California this year. So we've been, we've been really able to do a fair amount of traveling, which has been very, very nice. I am teaching myself to knit. Oh, that's great. Yeah, because I think that's really important for my brain. Yeah. It's really to teach yourself a new motor skill that's challenging. and um, what Have you made anything yet? I made a cowl, a knit cowl, yes. Well, did you do it on straight needles or on a round needle? I did it on a round needle. I've never even seen one before. Yeah, I think it's easier. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, I do a lot of things. In the summer, we love to sail and work beach bums. Um, so we spend a lot of time on Cape Cod. Those of you from Massachusetts have yeah. been there. Fabulous. Yeah. So that's, that's probably a good description of me. Yeah. All right, Kathy, is there anything else that we didn't cover that you want to include? I don't, I can't think of anything. I guess I would just encourage people to keep their eyes and ears open for opportunities to get involved in this work because there, I think that in the next several months, there will be um, some opportunities to, to get involved and it would be really nice to have some new eyes on our work. <laughs> Yeah, well, we'll definitely keep our eyes open for it. Excellent, excellent. So thank you for joining us. And uh, we hope that you're, we'd be willing to come back in the future as this work evolves and, and keep us updated. Absolutely, I'd be delighted. Thanks, you guys. This podcast was produced by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group. 
Subscribe to our newsletter on the ANPT website, neuropt.org, or check us out on Facebook. Thank you to our volunteer for this episode, Kristen Sternowski. This podcast was edited by Sarah Crandall with help from Katie McGraw. Thanks to Jimmy McKay for providing music. If you've enjoyed listening to these podcasts, please forward this episode or other episodes to friends and colleagues. Thank you. Um, I didn't know you had bloopers. Nobody mentioned bloopers to me. Okay, well. I'm trusting you. I'm trusting you, Miss Sarah Crandall. <laughs> I'm not going to say any more than that because I'll screw it up and I'll probably screw that up and as well. Welcome to 4D, a podcast. I already screwed up. <laughs> All right. I didn't even say the whole title. <laughs> tonight we'll be talking. Oh, I hate when I say tonight. Ah, uh, because it's not like people aren't listening to it at night. At the MG8 in, MGH Institute of Health Promotions. I think, Parm, there's just one or two things I need you to re-record. Like I think you said Institute of Health Promotions, potentially. <laughs> Yeah. We'll re-record that. Yeah. Please don't. And please don't use this in the bloopers. <laughs> oh, oh, it's going in for sure. <laughs>